You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax. And I'm Micah Hahn. And we are your hosts of this monthly politics and pop culture podcast. We are coming to you at the end of February, so let's recap the month first. Micah, how was February 2023 for you? Um, It was pretty good. I remember at the end of recording, at the end of last episode, I was like, I don't really know what February will hold. And then I had a very spontaneous February where I went on a weekend trip to Victoria, and it was super nice and like got to do a bunch of things that hadn't really been planning on but like had a lot of fun and like really embracing the weekend um enjoying the february long weekend it's been good how about you similarly i think uh we hosted a super bowl party so that was that was fun it came together like a week or so before so that was a nice little mid-february treat valentine's day was really great um, we also have a long weekend at, toward the end of February for President's Day, so that was just some fun little time off work. In terms of my resolutions, I did finally get my driver's license corrected, I am Amazing. happy to say. No, wait, I lie. It's not a driver's license. It's a non-driver ID. I should be very <laughs> clear. Do not worry, people of New York. I will not be on your roads. It just – when you're going to the DMV, it feels like you're getting a driver's yeah, license. Yeah, it does. And my temperature blanket is going well. We've had some surprisingly really hot days here in February and also some Mm -hmm. really, really cold ones. I got to use slate gray, which is my below freezing color. Whoa. But also light caramel, which is my 65 to 69 degree temperature. So it's been a big range. So lots of exciting stuff in the temperature (laughs) department. I am – just, you know, ready ready to see what it's like at the end of the year or even, you know, the end of six months. I think it'll be usable by then. <laughs> you can you, use it while you're doing it. I think so. I think that'll mm-hmm. be fine. There'll just be like a loose ball of yarn on the end at one side, yeah. but we can work around that. Did you read much in February, Micah? I did. I read a couple things. Um, one thing I um, – read slash listened I have like half an hour left but I really want to shout it out this month is Ancestor Trouble a Reckoning and a Reconciliation by Maud Newton um this is an audiobook but I've been really wanting to read more nonfiction this year and this was the first one I picked up um Maud Newton is a writer she's like written in all of the publications Um, And she mixes her own family history with kind of the history of genealogy and genes to ask questions about what we are ancestors and what we have gained from our ancestors and what we kind of lose through the history of time. Um, And it blends both kind of a reckoning of her own family's past and the history of kind of genealogy and... um, like the science of genes and how both her own family and that history is very steeped in racism and white supremacy in general. Um, Her dad like was a big supporter of segregation when she was growing up, um, like wouldn't let her watch Sesame Street. So it kind of has that stuff, but it also goes through kind of like eugenics and how that's tied to kind of 
not kind of, how it's deeply tied to genealogy and um, how we track our family trees. And she's a really great writer. I thought like the book was it's really wonderful um, and like also kind of scary um, as you learn about like ancestry DNA and 23andMe are not there for your own interests. And um, yeah, that that's sort of the big part of that book is about that. So I would highly recommend either reading that in physical book or audiobook form. Um, the other book I read, which I finally read, is The Secret History by Donna Tartt, which um, I had like a four-month wait on. And then because I had a four-month wait at the library and I got the book, even though I wasn't in the mood to read it, I like was compelled to. It's definitely an October-November book. Yes. So I think reading it post-Christmas, I think winter is still a good time. I would not want to be doing them in like July, though. No. It was definitely one of those books that I picked up because like everyone else was reading it. And I really have to say I enjoyed like I really slogged through the first half but loved mm-hmm. the second half much more. Mm-hmm. That basically the book like an event happens at the beginning, it like works its way to the event in the middle and then you find out the aftermath in the second half. And the aftermath I found to be much more interesting. And, like, better written. There was this one, like, these two pages that were just so funny. Um, Then the rest of the book, like, doesn't really have that in it. Anyways, it, like, got me thinking a lot. I, like, would read it at work. And people would walk into the lunchroom and be like, what you're reading? And I'd be like, this book that everyone else has read that now I'm reading. Um, And it made me think about, like, why we feel like we have to read certain books. A very, like, different things can be sad thought process was happening Mm. in my head. Are there any books like that where you're like, everyone's reading this, so I guess I'll read it? I mean, yeah, I think a lot of the book talk ones just become mm-hmm. so saturated, not just on TikTok, but on other platforms and in conversation that I felt a pull to read it. Yeah. Some of them have been so bad that I've had to put them down. But when I read The Secret History, I think that's one that because it's so long, and as you said, that first half is a little bit of a slog. I don't know if I would have continued reading it if there wasn't all these people saying Mm -hmm. it's the best book ever. And I still don't really know how I feel about that. I think it was definitely one that really stayed in my mind. And I was thinking about it a lot after I closed the last page, you know, just thinking about the characters. And there's a lot that's left unsaid that was really intriguing. But that dude is cold, over winter for like it oh, must a be a hundred pages. Time. It's so boring. Like he's cold for so long, and I, I, I cannot even remember if that has significance on the plot later on. It's sort of, but in a way that could have been cut quite a lot. I yeah, think. Uh, yeah. And then I do think the blurb of that book, at least on Goodreads, is very misleading. It makes it seem mm-hmm. like there's going to be more of these evil events and that they're all under the thrall of this professor who like I didn't even think was in it that much yeah I think it was one of those um like the kind of like cringy advice they give for writers is show me don't tell me yeah and this had a lot of tell me like Mm. he told us they were enthralled by the professor but never showed the professor being like deeply enthralling no, I think I, I barely saw him on page in comparison to the others. So I was like mm-hmm. a little confused by that. And then this like evil event happens on the very first page. 
but the Goodreads description talks about them like descending into pure evil, which made me think that there was going to be far more of them. Yeah. Or, I don't know. I think I thought it was going to be a little more action-packed. So I guess to answer your question, that is one that I think hype, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. propelled me to keep reading it. But I don't, I don't know if I would have. But I'm, I am really glad I did. So yeah. in a sense, like I can see why everyone's talking about it because I am glad I read it at the end. It's just – I guess I like no. – if someone asked should I read it, if they didn't already – like if they weren't already compelled by the hype, I'd be like, I don't know if you need to do that. Um, yeah, but if they're like, like, I'm curious about this book because so many people like it. Like, yeah. Then I'd be like, yeah, like worth the read if you like know that it's going to be like long and verbose. And if they're not a huge reader, I don't think I would recommend oh it God, either no. because it's really long. As I said before, I think it can only be read in certain seasons. Like it's not an easy breezy summer read. And I think if someone was looking for something like in a similar literary vein that's a lot easier to consume and I think really does deliver all the way through – Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, it's there. I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. That's what I would recommend. Yeah, I totally agree. What about you? Did you read anything this month that you found? I I did, but there was nothing that I was completely obsessed with or I feel you haven't heard a lot about. So I'm actually, maybe for the first time ever, going to skip a reading recommendation. Damn. And go straight on to watching because this month I became absolutely obsessed with one TV show. Mm-hmm. And that is Fixer Upper, the HGTV show where Chip and Joanna Gaines make over homes in Waco, Texas. Have you ever Amazing. seen an episode of this? I haven't. Other than like random clips. Yeah, because they've built this like empire. So I think even if you haven't seen an episode, you know about Chip and Joanna. It's sort of like the property brothers um, Mm -hmm. in that they've managed to extend this into a lot of other businesses. They have their own network now, the Magnolia Network. There's like a thousand spinoff shows. They're also sort of, I guess, contracting other people to come and do home makeovers on this network. They have like a bakery. They have a store. They seem to be like the king and queen of Waco, Texas. And I just became enthralled by it. I think because mm-hmm. February is, you know, despite the events we spoke about in the intro, uh, often like a pretty quiet month. It's it's winter. There's often not a lot going on. It was really nice to have something comforting and sort of formulaic like this to watch. Mm-hmm. The original show ran from 2013 to 2018 and I think I have become way too knowledgeable about real estate in Waco, Texas during that time. Like give me a square footage, show me some exterior shots and I could probably give you a pretty good asking price estimate, which Mm -hmm. were obscenely low. Like you (laughs) like some of these houses were a little dated, but definitely livable, going for like $190,000. I could not believe it. But I I think I might have to like reel back on this a little bit in March because at the moment when I close my eyes, I can see Joanna's shiplap walls and I can hear (laughs) Hip yelling about demo day. So it might be time for something else in Mm -hmm. March. How about you? What have you watched? Um. 
I've watched a couple things. One of the new movies I saw was One Fine Morning by Mia Hansen-Love. Mm-hmm. Um, she directed – she's a French director. She directed Bergman Island, which was one of my favorite movies from last year. Um, we actually had to, like, leave our Super Bowl viewing, like, with only five minutes of play left <gasps> because we had to go see this movie, um, which was sad. Um, but totally worth it because it's definitely my favorite movie of the year so far. It's so deeply French. Uh, it's about aging parents, an affair, like being a parent, living in a small apartment in Paris. Like, do they smoke? Is there wonderful. croissants? So much smoking. Okay. Definitely croissants. Walking through gardens. Um, it stars Leah Sidhu, who is wonderful, and she like is in Francophone and Anglophone movies. Um, she plays Sandra, who whose father is a former philosophy professor who now has this neurodegenerative disease and so can't take care of himself anymore. So half of the movie is about them navigating the French healthcare system and trying to find him care. And it's like very sad. The other half of the movie is about this affair that she's starting with a married friend. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very French in its treatment of the affair in that, like, I think in American movies, affairs are always bad. And, like, the people who have affairs, it never works out for them. Um, It's, like, morally wrong. Whereas this, like, understands it in its nuance more complexly. It kind of, it brings this second lighter half of the movie compared to what she's going through with her father. I also found it really interesting in that she plays a single mom and I think single moms in media are often like they like have always raised their baby by themselves. There's like a deadbeat dad like and they're always struggling whereas in this she she's a widow and they don't really go into those details of how her partner died Um, but she's like not really struggling like the conflict of the movie is not the fact that she is a single mom Mm. Um, which is so rare and I thought was really refreshing. It's just wonderful. It, like, starts with maybe one of the most heartbreaking scenes I've ever seen in a movie. So, like, prepare yourself. But it also has maybe the best Christmas scene I've ever seen. It's so wonderful and, like, lovely and joyful. Um, So there is balance there. And it's also just a beautiful movie, so I would definitely recommend checking it out. I think it's going into wider release in the next couple months. Exciting. I will add that Mm -hmm. to the list. In terms of listening, I want to share something that does actually touch on single moms with, Mm. uh, you know, raising a kid on their own, deadbeat dads, Gilmore Girls, specifically Mm -hmm. the podcast Sentimental Garbage Gilmore Girls miniseries. So I believe I've mentioned this podcast on here before, but it's by Irish writer Caroline O'Donoghue, and it's about the culture we love that society can sometimes make us feel ashamed of, which is a very different things can be sad concept. Very. And Caroline discusses everything from Sex and the City to weddings to, you know, movies like Runaway Bride is one of the most recent episodes with a different guest each week. And in late January slash early February, we got a Gilmore Girls two-parter with musician Joff Owens. They discussed the show through the lens of the men on it. So when they Mm -hmm. did the Sex and the City series, it was her and uh, journalist Dolly Alderton. And they did like an episode per season. 
But Gilmore Girls has seven. It was going to be a lot. So they decided to do this countdown of worst to best men on the show. They were very funny because they were like, I don't think the show, the men are not important. Like it's it's Lorelai and Rory, but we need to come up with a format. So we're going to do this. No one else should ever do this. That kind of gives you a clue of how like hilarious this is, which I think Mm -hmm. is why I loved it so much. You know, not only was I very pleased with the results of the countdown, but I laughed out loud so many times. There were some really great bits about Dean storming the Capitol, uh, (laughs) Rory working at WeTransfer, do the Gilmore Girls have IBS, really funny stuff. Mm -hmm. So that was my core listening of this month. And I do also want to give a little shout out to the Paper Town soundtrack, which (laughs) for some reason I have just been listening to on loop this month. So if you missed the 2015 John Green movie era, you know, when we were getting a new one pretty Mm -hmm. frequently and he had us all in his grasp and People were sort of hard on that one, but I loved it. It still has a great soundtrack. Definitely recommend listening to nice. it. How about you? What have you been listening to? Um, I've been listening to like trying to find nice, like chill, but still upbeat things to listen to while I'm working. And one of those things has been the new Mac DeMarco album, Five mm. Easy Hot Dogs. Great name. Very good name. Um, it's a, an acoustic album, and each song is named after a place. Um, and it's the place he was in when he wrote and recorded it while he was on tour. Um, so there's like Vancouver 1, Vancouver 2, Vancouver oh. <laughs> 3, Edmonton 1, Edmonton 2. Just like a lot of Canadian places because he's Canadian. Um it's very chill. It's very, like, guitar-heavy, um, great kind of working background music. Um, if you like Mac DeMarco, it's for you. Welcome to politics. This month, I thought we would talk a bit about kind of a politics and pop culture thing, but from a political angle. And I thought we'd talk about book banning, the history of book banning, and some recent attempts at banning books. I feel like we think of book banning as a thing from the past in part, like Nazis burning piles of books, the burning of the Library of Alexandria, stuff like that. And so we think Book banning is a little outdated. Um, But book banning has picked up a new fervor in the U.S. recently. Um, Specifically in Florida, teachers from elementary schools have been posting pictures of their libraries without any books in them in reaction to Governor DeSantis's new laws that are going after what he would call woke indoctrination in schools. So we'll talk about a little bit about that after we dive a little into kind of the history of book banning and why people ban books. The history of book banning goes back thousands upon thousands of years, and the reason why people book ban books are varied. One reason often people ban books is to have some sort of historic control over history and politics. And this brings us back to the very beginning of maybe recorded book banning, which is and interesting in context. Between 259 and 210 BC, Confucian scholars were buried alive and their books were burnt so that the Chinese emperor, um, Shen Huangqi, 
could control history because what he wanted, these like Confucian scholars had been writing about Chinese history, but the emperor wanted Chinese history and world history to start with him. Mm. And so he burnt all of the books from the past and literally buried these Confucian scholars alive so that history would begin with him. Oh my God. And this kind of shows that book banning is a way to like shape history in the way that one wants and shape politics. I think in our modern time, we maybe don't think about it as much, but book banning has all often been a big part of uh, religious monopolies. The famous one is Savonarola, who was a religious fanatic in Florence between 1497 and 1498, became very famous for organizing these book bannings. Specifically, he wanted to ban and burn, this was actual book burning, um, books that he understood to be obscene and was so good at convincing people that these books shouldn't exist that he convinced the artists who made the books and the art that showed anti-religious imagery to burn their own work. Oh my gosh. Wow. He must yeah. be a persuasive master. Um, very persuasive, but also the larger um, Catholic church did not like him. because So ironically, only a year after this, he himself was burnt at the stake oh for no. his heretical stance, heretical stance. So yeah, That's sometimes great. book banning really comes back to bite you. <laughs> um, another kind of religion affecting books is that the Bible has often been banned in many forms. Specifically, different translations or versions of the Bible have been burned for a very long time. The Catholic Church thought the Bible should only be written in Latin, in part so that it could be translated by the few educated people in Latin, aka priests, to the public. So for many, many years, the Bible, if it wasn't in Latin, was banned and sometimes burned. So yeah, so we have history and politics, we have religion, and then maybe the book banning that is most common or the one we think about the most is like moral panic book banning and book banning that is used to preserve the status quo. Um, obviously, these terms, these like categories kind of meld together. But as we saw with Savonarola, who specifically from a religious um standpoint uh wanted to ban obscene things but moral panics about obscenity transferred from the church to the state and that resulted in a lot of books being banned for example in 1807 the marquise de sade was imprisoned and his manuscripts taken by the state um specifically because his book the days of florabel was deemed obscene you may ask yourself like how obscene could it be well marquise de sade is his name is the origin for the term sadism, one of the acrid like words in BDSM, the acronym. So yeah, Marquis Sad, very famously an obscene writer and faced consequences from about that from the French government. More recent-ishly, um, in 1960, Penguin Books was part of a trial in England um, because they wanted to publish D.H. Lawrence's Lady Shatterley's Lover which contained a few sex scenes that were a little too spicy for the English. Um, they actually won that case and then a couple, and were allowed to publish Lady Shatterley's Lover in England. 
But then a couple months later in the U.S., the U.S. postmaster tried to ban it from being sent around America because at the time, the U.S. post office refuses to distribute obscenity in pornography. Um, and so the U.S. postmaster general declared that uh, Lady Chatterley's lover was that. This was later struck down and it was determined that not that the book wasn't obscene, but that the postmaster general does not have the right to determine what is obscene. Um, gotcha. I think in a lot of these cases, it comes down to those sorts of technicalities mm. of like who gets to determine what obscenity is um, and then what limits do people have on their power to prevent people from consuming that obscene literature so for a long time it was about general obscenity and then kind of the modern permutation of this worry about the obscene being read is a focus on children um, and what children themselves are reading and it goes from not just about the obscene but about protecting children members of the alabama state textbook committee called for the rejection of the diary of anne frank because they said it was a real downer they also said it had references to sexuality and so that was bad i these people's priorities are so confusing it is one of those things of like i just don't understand how that's where your priorities lie yeah i mean how are you ever supposed to teach a history class ever if of, you're just considering history to be a real downer. Yeah. I mean, I guess I mean, it's a I thing don't, they don't want you to, so. You shouldn't teach math because it's real boring. Like, <laughs> we should all be having happy, happy fun time at school. All the time. Um, an author we really talk about a lot, we've already mentioned in this episode. Um, our best friend. Our best friend, John Green, talks a lot about his books being banned. Mm. I think he mentioned it on like the one of the most recent episodes of his podcast. Yeah, he did. I'll um and there's a one of his newest like Vlogbrothers videos about it, so I'll post put the link in the description. But his all of his books have been banned in very like in some ways. But his most banned book is his first book, Looking for Alaska, which the American Libraries Association tracks what books are getting attempting to be banned in the U.S. And his book has been on the top 10 list four times. And in 2015, it was the most banned book in America. That baffles me because as someone who has read that book so many times, there's nothing in it that I can immediately think of that would warrant that. And I, I mean, I know he's talked about it. It's, it's, there is like a, a failed oral sex scene. That's the big problem, yes. right? Which, again, to discuss priorities, I think is the least of anyone's concerns in in that book. Like, there's yeah. a severely depressed teenage girl who, like, may or may not kill herself in it, which I still think you should obviously be able to read about. But how is a, a failed oral sex scene more concerning to you? Yeah. Um, his... We'll talk a little bit more about the kind of current attempts to ban books, but I think the history of people banning Looking for Alaska shows kind of the changes in how book banning has become even more aggressive recently. And that when they was first banned, it was just like placed on lists, like we're going to the library, people shouldn't be reading this. But now teachers are being sued for distributing pornography for getting their kids to read looking for Alaska and like could face penalties and like are like 
even if you are not found guilty, going through a legal process like that, interacting with the carceral state. It's horrifying. It's horrible. Yeah. It, like, changes your life forever. And so it's been getting more and more extreme. And these books, some books are, like, continuously being banned, and then newer books are being added to the list um, that you would just never think to be books that should be banned. So in parallel with that, while looking for Alaska, it's peaked in 2015 is the most banned book. Um, book banning in general has been increasing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, the American Libraries Association tracked in 2021 that there were a total of 729 challenges to books at library schools and universities. And this targeted 1,597 books total, like individual titles. Ooh, that's like a whole library. What else? That's yeah. all the books. And that's the highest number of books targeted since the association started tracking in 2002. Um, so there's been an uptick. And in the past, really popular banned books, it was often about this kind of obscenity that children shouldn't be reading. So Looking for Alaska, a very popular book to read, also um, to ban uh, other books include, like, Harry Potter famously has been banned many a times or attempted to ban because of witchcraft, which we didn't even get into, a weird combination of religion and morality. People really like banning witchcraft. Um, but in recent years, um, the top ten lists have kind of changed a little bit, and specifically more than ever – there's been ban- attempted bans on books uh, featuring LGBTQ plus stories. Um, I think that's in part because like there are more books about um, those stories in that community, um, but also because we've seen like an increased fervor of homophobia and bigotry mm. in that lens. Um, the other um, type of book that has seen increasing bans is anti-racist books um which like way to out yourself as a racist yeah uh beloved the tony morrison novel has always been on these lists as a very popular book to try and ban because it um depicts like quite brutal acts of violence towards women and women of color um but also kind of viscerally describes the what it what it was like to live within slavery um but other books like how to be an anti-racist was one of the books top 10 books in 2019 um or uh, angie thomas's the hate you give which is a kind of huge breakout ya novel about um a girl who it, experiences firsthand um a police shooting of um, a black man or boy and so that book has appeared on the list quite a bit um and of course people are still worried about sexual themes in books and are still trying to ban those as well i we've we've, like touched on this a lot because like we're big readers Mm -hmm. um we read widely and so this kind of we i think we both have an incredulity about why people want to ban these books in the first place like it makes no sense um 
Scott White, who is a professor of literature and teaches a class on book banning, makes this argument that the, these types of books fundamentally misunderstand like how children read. Um, hmm. He says children are not merely empty vessels waiting to be filled by text messages and images, hmm. despite how adults tend to portray young readers as helpless in the thrall to the stories they consume. Like, reading a book about queer people isn't going to make your child queer. No, they, they already exist in the world. Like, regardless of whether they're reading this book, a kid can be queer. Or, like, I can tell you a lot of the people that were doing sex in my high school had not read Looking for Alaska and the ones <laughs> who had weren't. So. Exactly. <laughs> they're not correlated. Um, and, like, pumping one type of information – like one part of information into a child is not going to change who they are. Like if you are raising your child to be a homophobe, them reading a book about gay kids is not going to make them gay, like, which is kind of awful. Um, but in the same way, like one hopes that if you're raising your child in a society in a way that like is accepting and loving towards people like reading or watching one moment of homophobia won't make them homophobic. Like kids don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, I really like this other quote from Scott White in this article where he says debates about challenging books would go differently if participants understood young ch child readers as active participants in the discovery and creation of knowledge. Like, we read to learn more about the world and like understand what's happening within it. And like no one reads a book and just uncritically absorbs it. That's just not like how we read and learn, especially because most of these bands are happening in schools. Like the whole point of reading them is not to like sit by yourself and think about it. It's to like communicate with others about it and learn about the world. So this brings us to kind of where we are currently, in which Florida under Governor Ron DeSantis has initiated a bunch of laws, including curriculum transparency laws. This happened in like March, April of last year, um, where they passed a grouping of laws, including this curriculum transparency one, um, but also included was the Stop Woke Act, which tried to regulate the contents of instructions and trainings in schools and workplaces. Basically, it was trying to like prevent anti-racism training. It's so um, in embarrassing the workplace. that you're. It's so yeah. You're making it is legal, embarrassing. Legal like legal things called stop woke. Stop. Like, I'm gonna tell you to stop. That's embarrassing. Yeah, and woke is an acronym, and I won't even no, like subject no. you to what the acronym is. No. Um. But this new law about the curriculum is – it's called the Curriculum Transparency Law. And the irony is is that the law itself is not very transparent. Um, so the new law requires that books in schools have to be free of pornography and prohibited materials, harmful to minors, suited to students' needs, and appropriate for the grade level and age group. Um, one issue is that it's rather circular. The phrasing of it prohibits certain novels, i.e. novels that have pornography in it, but also prohibits novels that should be prohibited. Um, but it never describes the rules of prohibition. So it's saying banned books must be banned. <laughs> Why should they be banned? No one knows. Um, and this kind of 
doublespeak and circular language is kind of at the center of both the law, but also how DeSantis has been talking about the law. Um, he said that there has been no state instruction to empty libraries or cover up classroom books. However, we are taking a stand against pornography and material, sexual material in the classroom. Um, so instead of like defining what he's basically saying the pornography can't be in classrooms. What is pornography? A very American sense of, I know it when I see it, but I won't tell you what that is. And so the law says that these books can't, they have to be reviewed to understand if they are prohibited. Um, and so what Duval County in Florida has done to comply with the law is they've, the school district has instructed teachers to remove all non-curriculum books from the shelves so that they can be renewed, reviewed right. so by like, the school board. There's like the Great Gatsby and the Catcher in the Rye, except not the Catcher in the Rye because that's too saucy. Yes. And not the Great Gatsby because Nick might be gay. So there's no books. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so DeSantis is saying they haven't banned books, but to go through this review process, they have to get rid of the books. Um, and this is in part because, because it's about distribution of pornography. It is now, it's a felony if you let any child read any of these books that could be considered pornography. Um, so I'm there's real back. consequences. Absolutely ridiculous. Yes. And horrifying. So, I think as Hank horrifying. pointed out in the podcast, it's this mix of both like, ridiculous but deadly serious yes um so one teacher in duval county filmed this really viral video of their bookshelves empty and then just happened to be fired right right after that and DeSantis says that these videos of empty bookshelves are a misrepresentation of the consequences of the law um even though the law if not explicitly banning books, it demands that books be hidden from children for a time and that some of those books never be shown to children. Sounds a lot like banning. Yeah. Andrea Phillips, who is a Florida teacher, I think really hit the nail on the head where she said, the, uh, the autonomy that has been stolen from me. I am a certified teacher. I've been doing this for more than a decade. I've done training after training. I've worked with kids for years. I know what I'm doing. Like teachers know how to teach kids in an appropriate manner for their grade level. And I think this in combination with the fact that teachers are so underfunded in the U.S. And specifically in Florida, they have so few teachers that they brought in the Marines to teach. Like it, it makes no sense. Yeah, I think I'd be a little more concerned that my child doesn't have a real teacher versus a 17-year-old Kabara looking for Alaska. Like, Yeah. Um, I think that it's like the transition, though, from banning obscenity, which in some ways feels like part of American morality, like horrible, but now the banning of like – history yeah. and like the humanity of people has like taken this to another level that is it's not unprecedented like has been happening as we talked about like throughout history but is seems unimaginable really so, agenda fuel stuff 
Exactly. So the Stop Woke Act, um, as we were saying, went after the curriculum, not just the books that um, are in elementary schools. And this affected the College Board's AP African American History class curriculum. Um, And the College Board came out and said that in Florida, they will no longer be teaching um, books and generally the subject of Black Lives Matter, mass incarceration, police brutality, queer Black life, or the Black Power movement. These are just, like, not part of the curriculum anymore. So what are they allowed to to teach? Um, The civil rights movement, I guess. Um, And uh, slavery. Right. But we have to pretend that, like, like, in these students' lifetimes, everything is just Else doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Like, I guess black history, African-American history ended – in 1960 whatever like martin luther king dies and that's it yeah that's everything's solved there's nothing else to learn you're good ridiculous yeah that's ridiculous um i think in the era of while the internet obviously brings a lot of misinformation like what are you telling these children or these young adults that they're not they can't handle this information when it's right in front of them and they literally lived through it. Exactly. Um, I mean, yeah, kind of like what you were saying before that these ideas aren't, they're not made up in books. They're things mm-hmm. that are in the real world that these students are interacting with all the time. Yeah. So obviously these laws in Florida are like really horrific and extreme in some ways. Um, and there have been court challenges against them and they're coming down the pipeline in last year the aclu was able to prevent the stop woke act from taking effect in higher education so if you're taking like hopefully though there there's been some movement in other ways the goal is if you're taking like an african-american history class in a university in florida you should still be able to learn about black lives matter though as organizations are fighting back the Florida government and Ron DeSantis have been introducing much more punitive laws, mm. um, like making this stuff a felony. Um, and in the past in the U.S., like, book banning has not been taken well by the Supreme Court. Like, it fundamentally goes against, like, many constitutional rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Supreme Court has been generally anti, like, very pro-First Amendment and so pro- um books but obviously we've talked about a bit in the past um on this podcast the uh old supreme court is not the new supreme court and who knows what they would say um but yeah it's it's kind of scary it's been interesting to see the response from like Anti-book banning organizing has been strong for a long time. Yeah. Um, banned Book Week, which if you like have been in a bookstore before, you probably know about, um, started in 1982 um, and has been going for a long time. Um, and people are really trying to organize against this banning of books. 
Um, if you go into any bookstore, you can normally find a table that is that says uh, banned books, and they're always really interesting books that, to see. And obviously, honestly, some of the best books are on the banned books yeah, table. Yeah, totally. In my opinion. So, yeah, stay informed. Read a banned book. Maybe we'll read banned books and talk to you about them next week on the next Ooh, month on the podcast. That's a fun challenge. Let's do. Maybe that. we'll both just reread Looking for Alaska. <laughs> well, Micah, I've been telling you to read Akatar for a really long time, and that is on many a list. So nice. If you've been online this month, you've likely seen memes about a pair of enormous red boots, and I want to talk about them. We did a whole segment on the Lorica Matoshi strawberry dress back in August 2020, so I thought it was a good time that we focused on another viral clothing item. Micah, have you seen these big red boots around? I have. In meme form or on people or where have you seen them? Mostly in meme form, I would think. And then in like a, um, maybe you'll get into this, like a, we don't have to buy everything that fashion sells us thing. Oh, I'm so excited you said that. You have perfectly set the tone for this conversation, Micah. So firstly, what are the big red boots? They are the boots you've likely been hearing and seeing about for the whole month of February. They were leaked online on February 6th, which was over a week before they were actually released on February 16th, which was right after New York Fashion Week. And the name basically says it all. They're a pair of big red boots created by a New York-based artist collective named Mischief. More on them later. They look a lot like and have drawn a lot of comparisons to the manga character Astro Boy's boots or even mm-hmm. the boots that the boots the monkey from Dora the Explorer wears. The uh, product description ends with a quote reading, good thinking boots from Dora the, real- the royalty-free child. <laughs> the big red boots feature a TPU rubber shell and an EVA foam outsole and midsole. So it have the same sort of feel as a pair of Crocs. And each one weighs about three and a half pounds. And the cost for both of them together is $350, which sounds like a lot, but is actually a lot cheaper than that strawberry dress, which was $490. And there Mm -hmm. seemed to be a very wide acceptance of the strawberry dress purchasing. The caveat with the boots is that they seem a little difficult to get off. There's videos (laughs) of people trying to get them off for like 20 minutes at a time. But yeah, I think that gives you a little overview of what they are as a product. For me, the most interesting part about them, or one of, is the creators behind them. So as I mentioned before, they're made by Mischief, which is a New York-based art collective, specifically Mischief Sneakers, the collective's footwear label. And these guys have released a lot of shoes. In 2019, they designed the Jesus shoes, which were Nikes with holy water from the River Jordan in the sole. And they retailed for $1,425. I missed these. These are, these sound insane. Oh, I'm, every single one I'm going to read out, I completely missed. This is the first of their projects that I've heard about, but apparently everyone has been an enormous success. They released a pair of shoes with a little Nas X called the mm, Satan I heard shoes. of these. I didn't even hear of these. So you're, you're ahead of me on these, Micah. 
they're a pair of modified Nike Air Max 97s with a drop of blood in the sole. You may have heard of them because they were sued by Nike over that one uh, for yeah. the making people believe that Nike would endorse Satanism. And last summer, they released the Gobstompers with Jimmy Fallon, which are a pair of mostly white $195 shoes that when you would wear them, the upper white layers would get slowly worn down to reveal these swirls of red, yellow, and blue from the under layers, ultimately creating a pattern that's unique to how each person wears their shoes. And... Now they are making the big red boots. Since they're an art collective, they have a lot of artistic reasoning behind these shoes, the concept and the design. So in terms of concept, they call them cartoon boots for a cool 3D world and reference the continued blending of virtual and IRL aesthetics. When half the sneakers we see on social media are renderings, we come to expect a baseline of unreality. Big red boots are VR chat boots, which personally think is pretty clever, at least as a reasoning. Well, you know, Mm -hmm. it's up to you whether you actually buy that. In terms of design, they've said that hundreds of characters from the mouse, who we can discern as Mickey, to the plumber, Mario, to the hungry yellow circle, Pac-Man, have conducted the same exercise. How do you make a show using as few a shoe? I apologize. Using as <laughs> how do you make a show? How do you make a shoe using as few geometric primitives as possible and still have it read instantly? They've said that BRBs are it, that's uh, big red boots. By the way, I'm just doing some like fun little nice. in the know abbreviations. The BRBs are extremely shaped like boots, and I think that's very fair. Their design is minimal. And really just look like big red boots. And maybe that's what's got people so excited because these guys sold out in minutes and they've been seen on the likes of everyone. You know, they were originally modeled by influencer Sarah Snyder. We've seen people like Janelle Monet, Diplo, Iggy Azalea wearing them. There's been a lot of memes. I've seen a fair few Devil Wears Prada ones, you know, of someone asking, are you wearing the, the big red boots? Yeah. And the hashtag Big Red Boots has amassed 27 million views on TikTok. Damn. A lot. So why? Why are these shoes so wildly popular and viral? I think firstly, we could make a case that mischief are good at their job. You know, at a time Mm -hmm. when AI seems to be at its peak, maybe people really love the idea of a shoe that blurs the line between animation and real life. You know, this could be perceived as really well-appreciated pop art, which is, you know, art inspired by mass culture. I think another concern or, you know, reason why it's so popular is sneakerhead culture or sneaker culture in general. Mm -hmm. Sneakerheads are people who buy, trade, and sell sneakers, essentially collectors, like stamps or Furbies, or if I am looking at this very large stack of yarn beside me, crochet materials um (laughs) you know in an ideal world we'd all have no sentimental ties to material objects and you know i'm I'm not going to tell someone off for having an interest or a passion just because it involves items so i don't really think that's something we need to get into and Mm -hmm. you know the history of sneaker culture is actually really interesting in the u.s it began in the 1980s 
with basketball, specifically Michael Jordan and his Air Jordans, and hip-hop music. To quote the Sneaker Culture Wikipedia page, and this is actually quite poetic for a Wikipedia page, (laughs) the boom of signature basketball shoes during this era provided the sheer variety necessary for collecting subculture, while the hip-hop movement gave the sneakers their street credibility as status symbols. And that has only grown since then. Now Mm -hmm. there are these big drops that are highly anticipated because people have not just a genuine love and connection to shoes, but they see a resale value. You know, even when I was walking around New York today, the queues that were outside sneaker stores were insane of people who are so hungry for these items, whether for personal or monetary value, collecting and being interested in sneakers has become a huge culture unto itself. There are also sneaker events. A TikTok creator with the username SteveNato24 wore a pair of the big red boots actually to SneakerCon Philly this month and people got real excited about it. So I think the highly anticipated and highly hyped release of a sneaker slash shoe like the big red boots is bound to make waves considering the sneaker culture has got to a point where people get extremely excited and hyped up about this thing. Mm -hmm. But as you sort of mentioned at the beginning, Micah, there is also maybe just our rampant addicted consumerism that is behind why these boots are everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mr. sort of commented on this with their work. They have done a lot of weird drops, not just shoes. So they've done a defibrillator on Valentine's Day to fix your broken heart. Mm -hmm. Birkenstocks made out of Birkin bags, a box of cereal containing one big fruit loop. These sort of absurd art items that serve as a form of social critique Mm -hmm. you know they're creating these weird products and people still hungrily buy and spend a lot of money on them though if they're still selling these items it does sort of beg the question of is this critique or just irony under the guise and the guise of art used as a very clever marketing tool yeah can sort of turn your brain into a pretzel to think too hard about it But I think in essence, we just bloody love shopping. And so many viral trends these days are fueled by a desire to buy, buy, buy. I think this is very obvious on TikTok again, because there have been so many viral products over the past year or so. You know, we've seen the butt lifted leggings, these mini Uggs, fuzzy slippers, pillow slides, the big yellow aviators. And that's just clothing and shoes and accessories that's not counting all the gadgety bits or the Dyson air wraps or the Stanley cups or every book with pastel people on the cover at Barnes and Nobles Mm -hmm. there's a lot of viral items uh Micah have any of them tempted you have you purchased any TikTok viral items I haven't I have to say the Dyson air wrap slash hairdryer has always been a thing where I'm like "Mm, could be nice other than that I bought a $30 Revlon one at Target a few years ago, like way before this Dyson Airwrap Mm -hmm. thing. And it's kind of similar. It doesn't have the attachments, but it has like the big brush and it can give you these sort of waves. And Mm -hmm. it's fairly janky. It doesn't work all the time, but it's $30. (laughs) So I think I'm going to stick- Much better than- The 500 or something? 
Revolution era? Something like that. I feel we've both been fairly influenced by the books. Yes. As we've mentioned earlier on. Cough, cough, a secret history. (laughs) But I think with the rise of TikTok, though, it's become even more clear how the desire or almost like a need to buy is tied to a desire or a need to keep improving ourselves because I think that's kind of what TikTok aesthetics are. They're, you know, they're shared as these trends, but in reality, are they maybe not a way for you to find your true self, but a way to convince you to buy things? Mm-hmm. As an example, just this year, we've seen the clean girl aesthetic, which is, you know, hair, makeup, and clothing style being very minimal, very feminine, very glowy, evolve into the vanilla girl aesthetic, which is an even more specific and granular version of that original trend. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to be said about how exclusionary this trend can be, which is basically clean girl, but cozy and predominantly white. And mm-hmm. as a creator named Trouble Puff said, it is basically wasp treadwife purity culture repackaged for Gen Z. But it is also a way to get people to buy things because even though it's a micro trend that might only last a minute, it requires you to purchase more items for this look to be achieved. Mm-hmm. So this one has like the Ralph Lauren knit sweaters, a replica perfume, cozy skims loungewear. And already we're seeing the big red boots become associated with aesthetics. One being clown core, which is <laughs> dressing like a clown. So, you know, not literally, but these ruffles, rainbows, big red boots. But it's also associated with a lot of other aesthetics and trends. The trendy, there's a trendy Instagram grandpa who's wearing it. Okay. Any of these sort of cool NYC kids like Sarah Snyder, this very streetwear focused trend. You could even argue that the sort of self-help side of TikTok that talks about nourishing your inner child could convince you to buy the big red boots because you're indulging, you know, the the kid who loves cartoons. So Mm -hmm. essentially to be one of these brands of cool, you could be convinced to buy what is a very fun but quite ridiculous and expensive pair of shoes. Yes. So what can we learn from the Big Red Boots and where do we go from here? I think the Big Red Boots definitely raise an interesting point on how blurred the lines have become between the virtual and physical worlds. And I'm very interested to see how AI develops. It's not something I am super, super knowledgeable on, so we're not going to go really, really into it. But I have sort of noticed that AI at the moment feels like what crypto was last year, the thing that everyone was talking about and everyone wanted in on. And crypto has sort of crashed into a legal fire in many cases. So I'm interested to see how AI develops and if we are, if that is going to infiltrate even more parts of our lives. Are we going to see more fashion or even beauty trends or social trends influenced by AI? I think the Big Red Boots have also highlighted the power of hype and the ever- churning factory of viral items there are so 
many items on the internet, like particularly on TikTok, that we feel that we need. And as I said before, I think a lot of this is to do with the power of aesthetics and attaching ourselves to this constant optimization. There's a creator I really like called Official Mac Rose, who's an NYC fashion stylist. And she made an interesting point about how aesthetics aren't even the best way to find your personal style. Uh, To quote one of her reels, she said, if it is personal, it is not going to fit into an aesthetic. Aesthetics help brands sell you a product, not find your personal style. It helps Mm -hmm. you become more marketable too. And the idea of finding an aesthetic that's going to work for your entire life just doesn't make sense. That's why they're always changing. You know, there's a new trendy one every few weeks. So if you be a little more selective and think a little harder about whether you actually like an item rather than if it's associated with an aesthetic, you can start to develop a personal style that's a lot more unique and personal, literally. And I would also add, probably save yourself a lot of money and a lot of items that go unused after a few weeks. Mm-hmm. This point also reminds me of Gia Tolentino's essay, Always Be Optimizing, which examines the pressures women feel to optimize their personal brand, often through things like owning a wardrobe full of athleisure wear. So you can read that in her book, Trick Mirror, which many, many people have. It's a bestseller. <laughs> but I'll also link to an audio reading of it in the show notes. So there's that. Honestly, like, I think maybe bringing in the aesthetics, maybe I've, like, deeped this a little bit. But there is definitely, you know, the consumerist power of TikTok and uh, yeah, always needing to buy items. There's something to be said for that. You've, you've noticed that, right, Micah? The, oh, for sure. Yeah. That there's always a core part of TikTok is not just trending sounds. It's what is the hot new thing to buy. And these boots are. Yes. But I don't want to be too harsh on the boots because I also want to clearly say – these boots are very fun, you know? Yes, mischief for making a statement with them. And whether you think that statement is legit or just marketing is up to you. And yes, there's a lot that can be said about hype and the attention economy and algorithm-motivated consumerism. But the big crap boots can also just be fun. Like, they're literally enormous red boots. They're ridiculous. And as stylist Amanda Sanders said... I'm happy that designers are feeling more free and things are coming out that are not so serious. I also think think it allows us to not take fashion so seriously. You can buy things that don't make sense just for the sake of you liking it. So if you like these big red boots, go for your life. I would love to see an outfit that you can wear to make them work and then tag us. But I think they're a pretty fun item for February ultimately. Alrighty, so that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Different Things Can Be Sad. Micah, what are you going to get up to before we record our March episode? Well, I might just be seeing you in person. Of course, Micah's coming to stay in my apartment. I'm going to have a fun guest. Very exciting. That is the most exciting thing that will be happening in March, I think. I think. So, cannot wait. For me as well. Actually, I have my parents visiting, and I'm going to visit them like next week. So there's a lot of visiting that will be done in March, but Micah, I'm Mm -hmm. most excited to see you. It's been a while. (laughs) 
if people would like to keep up with our adventures, you can find me on Instagram as at Yasmin Lomax. And I'm at Micah Hawk. And the podcast is at DTCBS Podcast. Until next time. Bye. Bye.